0: Father, the resurrection, you sending your son to die so he might rise again, screams out that you love us and this world matters to you. That our story is not over. It is just in the beginning. It's in the middles. It's in the hard places, but there is resurrection coming. And it is here and it is now. And it is yet to come even more. We praise you for that. We love you for that. We honor you for that. And we pray now that you would bend our heart to hear what you might say to us today. Our wandering souls searching on this long road for hope, for peace, for joy. We pray you'd meet us here right now and show us it's all you. You are what we are looking for. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Grove, you can take a seat. And just so you know, today is a day we celebrate. And usually when someone says that to you, it kind of invokes a response of some sort. So today's a day that we celebrate. Yeah, and normally I'll let you guys mosey in and get away with that, but not today, because today is some a day that we celebrate more than your most important birthday, more than your most important anniversary, all combined. Today more important than the day if you win the lottery, if you get your dream job, or the day that you retire, because in a lot of ways, all of those things, I mean, that's your life becoming more the way it's supposed to be, right? Like something good has happened. You feel like, man, this is the way life is supposed to be. And Easter, the resurrection, it's the spring of all things being made right. It's the beginning. It's like the birth. Something new has happened. There is a new song that is now being sung. That is what today is about. And today is about you building your foundation upon that resurrection, this truth that all things will one day be made right. And we're in the beginning stages of it right now. That's the foundation you build your life upon. Because today, Easter, is the day when the knife of love is thrust into, the, into death's heart and it's done away with. Today is the day that you rise up and step outside of your tomb and you're celebrating this today and you look into that tomb and you see how all sorrow, pain, loss that you have walked through, it's sealed shut in that tomb. But for all of that to be true for you, what must you believe? What must you believe about the resurrection? Today, we're going to ask the question, is the resurrection figurative or is it literal? Like, did Jesus literally die and rise from the grave? We're going to ask that question. And and then we're going to ask, hey, is there proof? Like, if we say, okay, if it's literal, is there proof that there is an actual literal resurrection from the dead? And today, we're going to investigate that proof. And I want to tell you this. If you are here... Looking for two plus two equals four kind of proof in the resurrection, you will not get it. Nor will you get it if you are looking for someone to marry. You don't have two plus two equals four kind of proof before you marry somebody. But if you, if you demand that kind of proof before you get married, you will never get married. You will miss out on love. Love. If you demand that kind of proof before you enter into your career, you will stay stagnant. You will not move, and you do nothing with your life. If you're looking for that kind of proof before you have kids, that it's going to be easy, everything's going to be okay, well, you're not going to get that proof there either. And if you are looking for two plus two equals four proof for the resurrection, and you don't go there, you miss out on life, you miss out on hope, you miss out on peace, and you miss out on joy. We're in this series, and we're going to stay in the series in Acts, and the series is called Our Hearts Burn Within, and today we're arriving at this tension between there's a miracle that has just happened, like Peter and John have just helped this cripple, man who's been crippled from birth, there's a miracle, and he's now dancing, he's rise, he's walking, and then we're holding the tension between the miracle and the resurrection, and we're going to ask proof, evidence, evidence for both a miracle and for Easter. And while we can't have two plus two equals four proof, we can have overwhelming evidence that the resurrection was literal. So let me read our verses. We're gonna be in Acts 4, verses 10 through 22, and then we're gonna look at verse 31 as well. Here we go. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So there's the, the crippled man who's standing before him well, and they're saying it's because of the resurrection of Christ. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who had been healed standing among them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed among them through them, this is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is it right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And then Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. All right, first point. Figurative resurrection with a question mark behind it. So what we have in the story is there's a 40-year-old man who's been crippled from birth. He's likely been at the same spot all of his life begging for change. All the people in this area know who he is. And then John and Peter walk up on this man and he asks them for some spare change. And they say, we have something better for you rise up and walk and he does and news about this miracle starts spreading throughout all the land so a grand group of people come this crowd gathers to hear what's happened and peter says here don't he says don't look at the miracle look at what the miracle is pointing to the resurrection the resurrection is the source from which this man stands and walks. And so Peter gives the sermon and then he's arrested for it. Him and John and likely this crippled man as well, they're thrown in this prison and the next day they go to trial. And they meet before this group of people called the Sanhedrin, these very powerful elite religious people. And they question them. These are the same people that had Christ crucified. Peter knows it, John knows it, and they're standing before them. And Peter, with even more boldness, speaks of the resurrection. And it throws this, this uh, group of people back who are very powerful. And they continue to threaten them, but they say, okay, fine. If you're, if there's a miracle that's been done. Listen, we see that. We're just going to tell you this. Stop talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Peter says, there's nothing else I'm going to talk about. This is why I'm here. I am now the mouthpiece of the resurrection. I have nothing else to tell you but the resurrection. And this this is the beginning of their plot to kill Peter, and eventually they will. But Peter does not care. It's his life purpose. It's why he's here. Now, here is the question we have to ask. Why is this group of men so angry at Peter that they're trying to figure out how to kill this man? There's a lot of reasons. Today we're focusing on the resurrection, and here's why. Within this uh, Sanhedrin group of powerful elite, there's another group within them called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees do not believe in any type of resurrection at all. Not just about Jesus, but all of us. The Sadducees would say there is nothing after death. There is no afterlife. You die, and you are brought down into the dirt, and you're done. It's over. Life does not go on. That's it. Black forever. You see nothing. That's what they believe. And they believe that there are no miracles anymore, So they, they kind of, or, or at all. And so they pull the miracles out of the Bible as just kind of figurative stories. And they turn the Bible into a book about morality. Does that sound familiar? This is very common today. You know, we think that, oh, that was back then. We've graduated from a lot of this religious stuff. Actually, if you look, it's just cycles and repeats. Over and over and over again. And you see this, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was a deist, which means he believed that there was a God, but the God was impersonal, like an impersonal force. And we can't know this God, and this God has no concern with us at all. And Thomas Jefferson rewrote the Bible, and he took all the miracles out, and he just left it as a book of morals. And it's common today to think this way. When we look at the Bible, and, and you'll hear a lot of people say this. The Bible is like this meta truth. It's a truth above all other truths, but it's all figurative. And it's figurative like this the cross, well, you have a figurative cross in your life, and you've got to face it. And you've got to press through it, press through the suffering, press through the pain. And if you will, you'll come out on the other side resurrected. And that sounds good. Like that's appealing. But if you ask Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, what he thinks about that, he says if the resurrection is not literal, then Christians are the most to be pitied. The most. Now, why does he say that? Well, first, he says that if the resurrection isn't true, then sins aren't forgiven. So for Paul, the cross requires a resurrection. And I'm going to make a bet that none of us have felt the full weight of our sin. Like, we kind of brush it off. It's too painful. I think if we really felt the full weight of all that we have done, wrong. Our propensity to mess everything up, the weight that we would feel, it'd give us a heart attack, it'd drive us mad, and it would not be a good thing for us. But for the Christian, if the resurrection is literally true, then that means we can stare our sin in the face, knowing that we've been forgiven. It doesn't phase us as much anymore because we know there's a way out. So that's the first thing. If, if the resurrection is not literal, Paul says, well, then our sins aren't forgiven. Second, he says that all this suffering that Christians are going through, I mean, and you understand this about Christianity, like the mark of a Christian is love and even love of our enemies. So when when we see someone, we are willing to sacrifice and suffer for them uh, for the sake of love. And Paul says, It's wasted suffering if the resurrection is not true. And then the last thing he says, if the resurrection is not literal, is that we just turn to fertilizer in the end. So what's the point of it all? Like, you you do this thing with figurative, like, well, I figuratively love you. Well, that doesn't sound so great. Let's say you're hungry and you plant a seed in the ground and you've been watering it and fertilizing it, waiting for this something to grow up that you can eat and you're waiting and it's not happening. So you say to the seed, why aren't you growing? And the seed says, I have figuratively already grown. You die of hunger. If the the resurrection is figurative, here's the implications. You do turn to fertilizer. That's your story. And if you're lucky you become nutrients that a plant can like take in. And so now you're living in this plant as this nutrients and energy. And if you're really lucky, an animal will eat that plant and then you're in this animal. And if you're really, really lucky, a human will eat that animal and then you get drawn up into this human. But what if the human that eats you is Hitler? You know what that means? It means you have now provided the energy that contributed to the Holocaust. Now, you can live that way if you want, but your soul right now is screaming at you to listen to that man and what he has next to say to you. Not because your soul is trying to trick you to hope, but your soul is like a compass that's searching out the truth of the resurrection. That's what is there for you. Listen to your soul. Let it guide you. So let's move on to a literal resurrection. What I want to do now is I want to make a case for both miracles and for the resurrection. So we're going to look at miracles first. Let me say this about miracles. They are not a contradiction to nature. They are a contradiction to what we know about nature. They are signs pointing to something greater beyond themselves. Every miracle is pointing to something greater. They are clues that there is something more to this life than what meets the eye. You think about it like this. Say there's a giant fish tank with this grand ecosystem within it. But the fish tank has been abandoned. It's still plugged in, but it's abandoned in this warehouse. All of a sudden, there's no more food being put into this fish tank. A long time goes by, and the fish have forgotten the memory of food dropping in. And and then... These fish grow so hungry that they begin committing these monstrosities that these fish never knew they were capable of. Death is reigning now, chaos is in this ecosystem. But then one day, it's like the sky opens up, and this hand drops like this bread of life down into this ecosystem. It's flakes of food, and the fish say, It's a miracle. Now we know it's not a miracle. We know that simply someone has found this fish tank and they have graciously fed this fish. And now that that's happened, life is flourishing. Death is no more. Life is becoming more as it's meant to be. A miracle is when God opens up our ecosystem and puts his hand in, he brings order to the chaos. Miracles are doing something, they're signs. They're pointing to something greater. They're pointing to the one whose hand dipped into the ecosystem. They're pointing back to creation and they're pointing forward to when all things will one day be made right. And so I want to look first, I want to look at creation right now. And I just want to look at the fine tuning of our universe that allows us to exist here right now. And before I do that, let me say something about the Big Bang. This Big Bang theory Long ago, when the Big Bang Theory was first about, the atheist scientist said, oh no, this is proof that the Christians are right. And somehow along the way, the narrative has changed into the Big Bang Theory is proof that the Christians are wrong. And I don't know how that has happened. But I think, well, I think if you're a Christian, you should try to take that back. But anyways, miracles They're fingerprints of pointing to God's fine-tuning. So I'm going to give you six fine-tunings of the universe as proof that this is the greater miracle that every miracle is pointing to. So first, if our earth were any larger, the gravity would be too great. And methane and pneumonia would be too close to the surface of the earth and we would die. If our earth were smaller, the gravity would be less. And then water vapor would escape our atmosphere. Well, then we don't have water. That's a bad thing, so then we die. Second, if the Earth rotated any slower, it would get too hot and too cold, and then we couldn't survive here, we would die. If it rotated faster, the, the wind would be too great, and so we would die in that case. And also, there is a planet, Jupiter, that is our hero. Without Jupiter... Comets would be constantly like exploding into Earth. So Jupiter just keeps saving us from these comets, like absorbing them, pushing them away from our atmosphere. Fourth, it said that while the explosion of all things came into existence, there was uh, a planet of some sort or something large hit the Earth, and it, it formed the size of the Earth and also it helped form the moon. But another thing that it did is it cleared out our atmosphere which allowed the sun to be able to shine down upon us and give us the life that we have. Without that happening, life would not exist. And while we're talking about the moon, this is just God showing off like, hey, I do beautiful things too. When when an eclipse happens, the sun and the moon are the exact same size. Like the distance is perfect. That's just God showing off his artistic beauty. Sixth. When all things came into existence, there was an explosion. If the explosion was faster, then matter would be too separated and we could not exist. If the explosion was slower, then all matter would be clumped up too close together and we could not exist. In other words, God has really done a lot of work to make sure we're able to survive here. In fact, that was only six of the fine tunings. What What, what is said is that there are like one in 10 to the 73rd power or something of fine tunings, which is one in 73 zeros of the amount of fine tunings in our universe that has to happen for us to exist. Like, here's how astrophysicist Hugh Ross describes it. He says, here's the likelihood of us existing. Take all of North America and cover it with dimes and then cover North America again with another layer and then another layer, and another layer. And keep doing this until you reach the moon. But you're not done yet. You have to then take one billion other continents the size of North America and load those up with dimes that reach the moon. And then he says, take one of those dimes and mark it red. Throw it in the pile, blindfold a friend. The likelihood of them finding that dime is the likelihood of us existing. This is impossible. Every miracle is pointing back to the fine tuning of God at creation. Miracle, a miracle is essentially God winking at us like, "Hey, I'm still here. I haven't forgotten about you. I see what life is like there, and I just want you to know I haven't forgotten you. I'm fighting for you. I'm here." And so it's looking backwards. And by the way, along with all of that, there's a Bible verse that says Christ is holding all things together. Meaning like he's holding this, all all these fine tunings, he's holding it together right now. So, So miracles are looking backwards at creation, but they're also looking forwards to something greater. And this is our case for the resurrection. The resurrection is not only, it's, it's like God has come into the ecosystem himself, like God and man, uh, awesome. Somehow, Jesus is God and man, and then he comes into our ecosystem, and then he enters into death, and then he pulls it inside out, reverses it all. That's what, that's what Easter is about. And what I want to do is I, wa- I want to make a case that this is making all things new. And here's how I want to make a case for the resurrection. I'm going to do something strange, I'm going to say, let's pretend like the Bible isn't God's word, though it is. Let's pretend like it's not. Let's pretend like it's just a historical document, because this is what critical scholars do. You know what a critical scholar is? They are historians that study things, and there's critical scholars of the resurrection, and, and what they've done is they've they said, all right, we're going to look at the sources Throughout history, and, and see what we make of the resurrection. And here are six facts that virtually all critical scholars now, a critical scholar again, this is not a Christian, someone who is skeptical of Christianity, but they're historians. And here's what they say about the resurrection. First fact that they say Jesus was a real person who died. It's very important that we know that he died because some people say, well, he didn't actually die. We just thought that he died and uh, that's why we think he rose. Well, here's what the critical scholars, these aren't Christians. Here's what they say the problem with that is. When Jesus is on the cross, there's a spear that is thrust into his side. And when it goes into his side, blood and water come out. The reason water comes out is because when you die, there's like a sack of watery fluid that builds up like around your lungs. And so the water's coming out to show this man really has died. All critical scholars say he died. Second fact, all critical scholars say, the disciples truly believed that they saw him risen from the dead. But not just the disciples, 500 other eyewitnesses believe it to be true. Now, People will say, they just imagined it. It can't be real. They just imagined it. The critical scholars say, well, no, because throughout history, there has never been a time where there were mass hallucinations in multiple different times, in multiple different places, all having the same hallucination. It's never happened. So critical scholars say, well, no, I I don't think we can say that. Okay, third fact, critical scholars will say, the disciples were martyred because they claimed Jesus rose from the dead. Like they stood behind it. Like this man has risen and I will not deny it even if you threaten me with death. Some people say, well, the disciples just made this up. The critical scholars come along. Again, remember, critical scholars are not Christians. They're historians. They come along and they say, well, the thing is, Liars make really bad martyrs. In other words, if there was a knife to the throat of the disciples and they said, deny that he rose from the dead or we're going to kill you, they're going to say, if it's not true, they're going to say, did we say literal? We meant figurative. You misunderstood us this whole time. But the critical scholars will say, no, they all died proclaiming it's true. Fourth fact that all critical scholars say, virtually all, That Paul, who was a persecutor and murderer of Christians, saw the risen Jesus, and he was changed. Now, some people say, well, Paul was doing a power play here. He was grasping for some power. He's grasping for some fame. And the critical scholars come along and say, no, no, no. You don't understand Paul's life. After Paul became a Christian, his life was torture. It was hell on earth. And he endured it for the sake of God, God's being glory being known on the earth. This is not a man who is interested in a power play. Fifth, fifth fact. James, Jesus' brother. I mean, can you imagine being the brother of Jesus? He's his half-brother. And this kind of makes sense. He's probably really jealous of Jesus. James writes him off as a crazy brother. James is a skeptic. Until he sees Jesus rise from the grave. He sees him. And then he becomes not just a believer, but a leader of the early church and then eventually dies as a martyr proclaiming Jesus rose from the dead. And here's the last fact, that the tomb was empty. This is agreed upon by 75% of critical scholars. So we're not at like all the way at the top, but we're close. The tomb was empty. The argument against this is that They lost the tomb. Now, the problem with that, the critical scholars will say at least 75%, is that we know that Joseph of Arimathea is the one who gave Jesus a tomb. So Joseph, all they had to do was say, hey, Joseph, where's your tomb? Oh, let me show you, it's over here. Okay, there there he is dead. But that doesn't happen. The other argument is that the body was stolen. Now, here's the problem with that. There are 16 armed warriors that are guarding the tomb of Jesus. Now, why are they there? Because throughout all of Jesus's ministry, he was kept saying, I'm gonna rise from the dead. I'm gonna rise from the dead. I'm gonna rise from the dead. So to ensure that they kill the movement, they set up these guards, and yet that doesn't work either. The evidence is overwhelming. If you aren't a Christian, at this point, I wonder why. And the Bible has something to say about maybe why. It says, we tend to suppress the truth. Now, why do we suppress the truth? Why would we suppress the truth of Christianity? Well, how about this? If it's true, we lose control of our life and we're terrified of that. Like I know some of you guys, you are control freaks. If Jesus is king, like, you are no longer in control. This life is not yours, but his. The Bible says that's actually good news. Or you're worried that you're going to have to give something up that you love, that you're holding onto. And the likelihood is, yes, you will have something to give up. If Christianity is true, you're going to lose some things, but you're going to gain a whole lot more. Or you're going to lose yourself if Christianity is true and you will the message of christianity like a faith is die to yourself but then you come alive in christ if you're a christian here's my here's my and question to you why aren't you as bold as peter like what what is our problem why can't we be as bold as peter is here this is our third point. Resurrection is foundation. In the very beginning of our verses, in the very end, there are two things that are said. In the very beginning, we see that Christ is the foundation. He's the cornerstone. He's something that you stand upon that's unmovable. So if an earthquake comes along, the earth gets shaky. And I know we're not used to this in Florida, but let me tell you what happens. The earth gets shaky and you can't stand. You can't move. You can't dance. You can't do anything. You certainly can't celebrate because the ground is moving. But if the ground is solid and it's a good foundation, well, you could dance, you could sing, you can celebrate. But then our last verse, it says that they were shaken. So what is it? Is there a solid foundation for us to stand upon or are we shaken? And the answer is the shaking comes first. Because throughout the Bible, whenever God shows up, whenever his glory is revealed, it shakes the earth. Literally, the earth begins to shake. And the reason is because when something is glorious, it means it's weighty. It's heavier than everything else around it. So you drop something heavy around you, it's going to shake the earth. You think of it like this. You're in this giant body of water, and a little pebble falls next to you. Nothing will happen. But if a huge glacier like is dropped... You're in trouble. I mean, it's going to pull you down under. You're not going to survive that because it's weightier than you. It's more glorious than you. So what happens is when his glory comes, it shakes you. It shakes the earth. But keep watching. Eventually, it settles, it calms, and then you can climb upon him as your foundation. And then when you're upon him as the foundation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when you're there, something that can't be shaken, then uh, the earth can no longer shake you. In fact, you begin to shake the earth. That's what happened with Peter. Because, you know, the world begins to watch you. Like, let's say you become a Christian today. And you start changing and the world is watching you. And you start living differently. And then you start facing sorrow, but you have joy from it. You, fa- you face some anxious things, but you have peace through it all. And the world is watching. And as they're watching, they become shaken by What's happening to you? This is what happens with Peter. Like, Peter fears neither death nor loss. Why? Like, why is Peter so courageous in the face of death? Because he knows the worst that can happen to him is death, and it's going to bring out the best for him, paradise. He understands the equation of Christianity. That, like, it's somehow because the resurrection is true, the cross and the resurrection, it's through sorrow you get to joy, through anxiety you get to peace, through fear that you get to courage. And he understands that there is not one hair that is upon his head that will be removed unless it is the will of God. And that is a good place to be because Peter understands that he has a God who is willing to come and to die and to bleed for him and to suffer for him and to go down into death and then rise up out of it. And if all that is true, (coughs) then it means Peter matters a lot to God. And this is a God who has power over death. So he has nothing to fear. And so I ask us, why are we so scared? Why aren't we free? I mean, as free as Peter. Why? I mean, you've got to be asking yourself right now, if you're a Christian, why do my circumstances control me so much? Are you scared of being alone? Are you scared of not having love? Are you scared that you have no control over your finances? Are you scared you're not going to be successful? Are you scared something's going to happen to your children? I'm not saying don't be responsible. I'm not saying like don't work hard. I'm saying live like the resurrection is true because it screams out that God loves you and cares for you beyond your wildest dreams. Let the resurrection loose in your life and you will be never shaken by the world, but you will shake it. You know, when Jesus died, the earth literally shook. What happened? I suppose what happened is he is this foundation. He's this cornerstone. He's the thing that life is built on. And when he's on the cross, you know what he's doing? He's holding on to all of our sins. Like he's carrying the weight, the full weight of all sin. And when he's doing this, the wrath and justice of God is being thrust down upon him. And he breaks. The foundation stone is cracked in two. And it causes the earth to literally shake. Three days later, there's another earthquake. The stone rolls back. The tomb is open because Jesus has cracked open death. And when he does that, he's restored. As the cornerstone. He's this foundation stone again that's put back together. The resurrection is true. It means you have something to stand upon. It means that you have something to dance upon. It means you have hope. It means you have joy. It means you have peace and it cannot be taken from you because it's a foundation stone that will never be broken again. Because he was broken, so you aren't broken. And he's put back together, so you can be put back together. And now you dance and you celebrate upon him now and forever for the rest of your life on into eternity. And let me tell you something about eternity. Each chapter becomes better than the last. And somehow all hurt, death, pain, and loss are gone. Like they are sewed and in shut into the grave and it is sealed. And you think it's too good to be true. But the resurrection is the kernel for it all. The resurrection seals it as true. And I just proved to you the resurrection is true. So live like it is. And that means today you celebrate. You take out the mimosas if that's not gonna get you into trouble. You, you eat the best of foods. You're celebrating more than anything else that there is to celebrate. You go all out today because life it beats death in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have put an end to death. The death is now dead in the death and resurrection of Christ. We pray, God, we ask that all of our doubts that swirl in our mind and in our heart, that you would just calm them, blow them away like with the wind, like clouds in the wind. Let the sky open up so we might see the beauty and truth of the resurrection right now. Don't let us go. Keep us with you and help us to now stand upon this beautiful foundation of life forevermore. God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider. Follow our social media at Grove Church PSL and check out our website thegrovechurch.co.